Hello and welcome to the TetraCast. Yes, it's the TetraCast. It's been a long time since we've recorded a standard issue episode of one of these. I am your new host, your interim host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are Cullen Black. Hello. We have George Foster. Hiya. We have Adam Vitale. Hello. And we have James Galizio. Hello. So yes, it's like I said, it's been a long time since we've done one of these. We had our, obviously, our RPG of the Year podcast just last month, but throughout of all of 2019, we kind of took a break. We had some some site staff changes, we had some different motivations, just kind of fell through the cracks. But now here we are, we're clearing the cobwebs, we're knocking the dust off, it's a new year, we're, new, we're newly motivated, so here we are, 2020, a new edition of the TetraCast. How are we feeling about this? I mean, I think a lot of us have been wanting to redo the cast for a while. It just, we just, last year we were like, okay, we'll start it next month. Uh, we'll start it next month and just never got around to it. It was something I'd so always course... heard about coming back, but I'm glad now that we're actually given it. So with this new edition of the TetraCast, obviously it's been over a year since they've held this. We've got, like Colin and George are obviously new faces to the site. So we've got new voices on the cast. We're going to have new perspectives, new opinions. So I'm excited. Uh, Colin, how do you feel about an RPG site podcast? I'm here to make this whole thing a lot more pretentious. I'm ready for it. <laughs> All right. Okay, so how we want to do this is uh, we're first just going to, we're planning on holding this podcast about bi-weekly, twice a month, something like that. Obviously, it depends on how we're feeling about it, the reception, the feedback, things like that. We'll talk about uh, any news in the RPG space as we uh, go along. We'll talk about what we've been playing. And we might have special episodes about particular topics or particular titles. Uh, 2020, I think, is a good year to start this up because it's the lead-in to a new console generation. It's a lead-in to a bunch of new exciting games and projects. Uh, but how we're just going to start this is just talking about what we've been playing recently. It seems like there's no more of an earnest conversation rather than just talking about what RPGs we've been playing, what we like, what we don't, etc. So, uh, George, you've been playing an interesting new game in the last couple days. Uh, what are you What are you uh, in the middle of right now? Uh, so I'm actually in the middle of reviewing Dragon Ball Z Kakarot for the site. Um, I'm about 18 hours in now. I'm near the end of the Cell Saga. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I didn't have massive expectations for it because <clears throat> a full-scale Dragon Ball RPG hasn't been done uh, ever, really. Obviously, there was the Legacy of Goku games, but we haven't had something to this scale. And you put up a pretty uh, a pretty cool little preview on the website just a couple days ago about your initial thoughts. And then, James, you also played this at last E3. Uh, is this something you had any extended interest in or not really? Or how do you feel about well, it? Well... Um, so I have a bit of a confession to make. I, I'm not that big of a Dragon Ball fan. Like I, I watched a bit of Dragon Ball Z, like on Toonami back in the day and whatnot. Uh, my main connection with the series actually is uh, Legacy of Goku 2 on the Game Boy Advance, which I loved that game and I played the hell out of it. Um, so I've been kind of interested in Kakarot since I've been getting similar vibes to like legacy of goku but obviously this is 3d and whatnot so i'm 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 still not sure if i'm gonna pick it up but if i do it'll probably be like down the line but i am kind of interested in trying it out eventually when this was first announced it was kind of interesting because i saw kind of two different uh takes from it people were saying oh, we've you know another another game going through the series but honestly it's been a while we've had the xenoverse games we've had 
Fighter Z, but this is the first one in a while that's actually just more of a an RPG adventure play through the saga. So it's kind of interesting, and it, it was people were skeptical at first that it would even go beyond Frieza, but then they're like, oh nope, it's it's everything, it's start to finish. This is one of the things that I'm I have a bit of a dual opinion on. So I love the fact that it does probably better than any other Dragon Ball game I've played. It does all of the little stuff. So you see all the stuff like them changing armor halfway into the Freezer saga. You see Goku on his way to Namek. Like you see all that stuff, and that's really cool. But for someone like me who has heard that story a million times over, who has especially played that story a million times over, it does where it's welcome a little bit. I do have an interesting question. What if I had never played or never watched the show? Do you think this this game would be like an introduction? You, could you do this in, in, in place of actually reading the manga or watching the show? I think you definitely could. I don't know if you should do that. I don't know if someone would be willing to stick with the games, like little annoyances and stuff, if you weren't a massive Dragon Ball fan already. That's that's right, where so, I stand. So it's it's built for the fans. It's not built to be an intro, but it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's the voice acting? Right. Uh, the voice acting is good. Uh, the English, because I listen to the English voice cast, uh, what I grew up on, and they're just as good as ever, really. Um, is there like a lot of it, or is there like just a small bits and pieces? Well, there, there's the whole uh, typical RPG, like. Oh, they'll make it. They'll be in a the conversation. They'll make maybe one noise of the okay. conversation. So you're like ah, and then they'll say what they're gonna say. But most of it is actually fully voiced. That's just stuff for the side quest. That's nice. I'm sitting here reflecting about how interesting it is that we're starting off this podcast talking about a Dragon Ball Z game. But hey, it's an <laughs> RPG. Your, your your preview is pretty good, and we're looking forward to seeing your uh, full thoughts whenever you uh, think you've got a, a good you know final take on it. So, Coming Adam, uh, you haven't uh, put up anything on our list about what you've been playing, but what have you been playing recently uh, into 2020? Well, starting the year, um, I did a couple of PC reviews for the site. One of them we've already touched on several times in the past. It's I, I did a quick little impressions piece on the PC port of the Alliance Alive, which uh, released this last week from Nice America. And, you know, I reviewed it back on 3DS back in 2018. Um, and then Cullen checked out the Switch version just last year, so I didn't have a whole lot to add to that. Um, but, you know, I think it's an okay game. I'm not as big of a fan of it as some people uh, are. Probably not. I don't probably don't enjoy it as much as Cullen did, but I do think it is pretty good. Um, I think it's one of the better uh, games from Furyu. It's just, uh, that uh, is definitely true. <laughs> it's just... Um, yeah, I think after reading your review and then like playing it through again on Switch myself, I did kind of start to see like, oh, this might not have been as good as I first thought. I, I was kind of just amazed that like we were getting an RPG localized so late into the 3DS's life cycle. It's also very classically styled. It's not, it's got the, the saga style combat, but like otherwise it feels like an RPG from like the 90s in a way. In, not not in terms of like mechanics, well maybe mechanics, but just just the feel of it. Um, so it kind of it kind of feels nostalgic, even though it's a relatively new game. Uh, as for the PC port, you know, it's really basic. Uh, I ran into a couple of issues. Um, one, I played on a on a Surface laptop, and it runs fine, except um, the Surface laptop has a different aspect ratio, and uh, then then sixteen nine, and it doesn't work properly on the game. Oh, no. So it stretches it vertically. Um, that's something that can maybe patch. Uh, 
or you could play it in a window, but I ran into some issues there. Um, but on a gaming PC, you know, this is not an intensive game. It ran perfectly well. Alliance Alive is Furyu's most recent RPG, right? They, have, they don't have anything past new past that, right? It came out a couple years ago. Um, there was Tech? the Caligula effect. Uh, oh, that, right. I, okay, I forgot that, that If I remember correctly off the top of my head, the, the Vita version of that came out right around the same time, maybe slightly before Alliance Alive, and then the remaster came out last year um, in the West anyway. But yeah, right, it's definitely so an improvement cut, you know, over there. It's definitely an improvement over the uh, the Legend of Legacy, which came out in like 2017 or 16 on 3DS. Um, the Alliance Live is basically the the unofficial sequel to that, and it's a big improvement. Uh, just looked it up, and actually, uh, Hero Land is the latest game that they've published. Oh, I didn't. Well, did they develop that? Well, they published it in Japan. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the developer was Netsu Biori. I haven't heard I don't know of who that is. Yeah. But right, yeah so I'm going to cut in the does... middle here and talk about what I've been playing. So I recently started up Iceborne, which came out on PC in early January. Uh, back when the original Monster Hunter World came out, I didn't have a PlayStation 4, so I had to wait for the PC version. But now I do have a PS4, but obviously there's no cross-save, cross-play. They're treated like different pools. So I started this up on PC and just kind of kept it there. So... Monster Hunter World, obviously, for better or worse, RPG or not quite, won our RPG of the year when it came out. And I think Iceborne, we have kind of similarly high thoughts about it based on how I've thought of it on the site, how James has reviewed uh, it on the site. So it's basically just been my no life for from January so far. It's just yeah. going through that. Now, let I've me just say so, that yeah. um, Capcom does call monster hunter iceborne an rpg like it said that in their press release it says that on their website i know people are always going to have their own opinions on what's an rpg or not and we fully admit that it's maybe not quite as much of an rpg as others are but you know it it shares a lot of the same dna in ways in terms of like progressing your character um, getting new equipment, you're kind of role-playing yourself in a way. It doesn't have all the same like damage numbers, I think, um, as you might expect. No, it does. But... It's new to world. Oh, it's a... okay. But but anyways, it. uh, it's it's, it's um, the way I think of it. Everyone's going to have their own opinion. My, my job is not to convince people yeah. that it is or isn't, but I just want to talk about the game itself. And I just think this is my first Monster Hunter game, and I just think it's got such a, a robust you know gameplay core. It's got an addictive kind of progression loop as much as i don't really like that term in in terms of uh how how you feel successful after after a, a completed hunt or how it really kind of knocks you down if you fail if you cart three times or whatever and then obviously the cooperative aspects it's just uh, my my friends and i in another discord where we normally play an mmo we almost have we have like a dedicated room to monster hunter now because we just we just took to it that strongly and it's just something we kind of keep on top of and we play pretty frequently it's that and that's why i think it's done so well on pc i think that's why it's sold so much on every console 15 million i believe was something that we posted on the site within the last two yeah months. they recently it's announced crazy sold, which um, the iceborne expansion sold 4 million and the game itself is at 15 million which capcom announced as the best title in their history but i believe that ends up that 15 million number ends up being like the best for a third party game in history well, best for third-party Japanese games. To put it in Japanese game. Like, I guess yeah. Somebody probably, like added up all of the sales data for like Final Fantasy VII between all of the ports and the original release, 
and that one's like around like 13.2 million so monster hunter world has sold more than all of the versions of final fantasy 7 combined now that's someone probably going to be changing in a few months but yeah someone <laughs> wants someone wants to mention that like monster hunter world has by itself outsold the entire persona series and i just find that slightly amusing mm -hmm. <laughs> so all right uh james what have you been uh, i know you've been also dabbling in iceborne on pc but uh what about some of these other games that you've been playing the last couple of weeks um well i've been playing actually uh so every now and then like well actually once every year i try to go through a new series like last year it was devil may cry the year before that was kirby so I had a Twitter poll about, okay, what game should I play through this year? And uh, Dragon Quest won. So I've been going through the uh, Dragon Quest series. Uh, started off with uh, 1 and 2. Um, been interesting. Uh, I'm definitely going to say a bit of a hot take here and say that I actually enjoyed 2 more than 1. Uh, despite the uh, obvious issues with 2 and the lack of direction in some cases. Why the hell is the... I the echoing flute in the middle of the ocean like the literal middle of the ocean with like no guidance whatsoever besides oh yeah it's in the ocean like around here and around here is like literally 20 or so tiles in any given direction i think adam uh, a couple years ago did a similar thing where he wanted to play through the dragon quest games and he just yeah. did it sequentially i don't know how you i basically feel like I would Basically, when Dragon Quest Eleven was first announced, this was 2015. It was quite a while before it actually released. At that point, I had only played eight. I was just like, you know what? Let me play the rest. So I did. Dragon Quest One and Two, I kind of find hard. They're 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 very old, and even though I played the mobile versions of them, which are kind of the newer versions, I I, I find them hard to like even include in like a ranking because they're so like they're so. They're basically how the series Out of is time. established. Yeah, and it's just it's hard for me to like even rank which one is better than the other. One is more simple. Two kind of it opens up the world a bit, but doesn't give you a whole lot of direction. And it, sometimes the balancing is weird. Um, but it it, it there are definitely interesting ways to see like how this genre kind of kicked off. You know, thirty years ago to what it is today. Just to kind of see those early entries. Um, but you do kind of have to put yourself in that mindset. Like when you're playing these games, these were these games were created 30 years ago or so uh, originally, and you kind of have to keep that in mind. I will say that um, the way I played it, and yeah, uh, so I bought the mobile versions, but I ended up emulating the games instead because I knew that Dragon Quest II was like really grindy. So I just figured, well, that'll probably help with things. Um, I don't even think good. Dragon Quest Two is that grindy, but it, yeah. the the whole the whole like classic three games are pretty grindy compared to like modern standards. Um, but I think the grind for Dragon Quest is always usually kind of fun because it's very simple. You can, like put a podcast on or something, just go kill enemies and then run back to town and rinse and repeat. Yeah, that Dragon Quest Three is like to this day arguably the best in the series. It is very good. <laughs> Well, I'm looking so. forward to finally getting to play that. Um, well, besides Dragon Quest, I've been, uh, I just played through The Outer Worlds. Like, um, I was originally going to play it last year, and I actually had it downloaded on Game Pass and, like, was maybe an hour in. But uh, 
for whatever reason, the game just runs absolutely horribly on AMD GPUs, like to the point where a uh, Vega 56 is running comparably to a GTX 1060, which if you don't play uh, on PC, like Vega 56 is at least one tier up above the GTX 1060. So that's not great. Now remind uh, so, me that that uh, it actually has like an AMD splash screen at the start, right? Yep, Ryzen Radeon splash screen at the start, which is hilarious. My laptop with a sixteen sixty Ti runs the game better than my desktop with a Vega fifty six. What yeah. What are you thinking so of I, the game then so far? Because oh, I loved it. I love the Outer Worlds. Oh well, I finished it like uh, last night, or well, technically this morning. Um, I enjoyed it. I like how. I will say it's super easy, like almost to the point where I'd say it's a detriment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I feel like, especially the skill checks, like if you're just like adding it, like there's very little in the game that requires you, like the way that the skills upgrade is that for most of the non-combat related skills, they're grouped into pairs, of, well, into trios. And you level up all three of them at once until you hit um 50 then you have to allocate points into those individual skills most of the skill checks in the game don't go much higher than 50 so even if you're just like being very conservative and where you're putting your points and you're putting them like kind of equally across everything most skill checks you're still gonna pass and i'm not sure how i feel about that i remember when i played through that i actually kind of went in with the idea you know what i'm gonna not raise my combat skills i'm just gonna raise my science my, my dialogue skills and I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna try to make this difficult for me i, I want to play this sort of not good at combat good at talking around situations character but then it ended up being that the combat was easy ish anyway because you were just inundated with consumables with healing items your, your companions obviously you know can carry you a lot of the ways and the game does have like a supernova mode um, a higher difficulty yeah. but it's not available independently of survival mechanics where you have to sleep like in the bed on your ship or whatever yeah. so it'd be interesting to see if uh they are able to whether it's with this year because they are planning on releasing some sort of dlc we don't know the scope of it yet they've just announced that it's happening i mean this year i get an idea that well i'm not sure if this was something added in the patch or whatnot but there's like a few worlds on the world map that you never go to and you don't really have the option to go to. So I'm wondering if those worlds are supposed to be some of the areas that you get to go to once the DLC drops. I personally, when I was playing that, I saw that more as like a setting up for just the, the world itself and sequel and franchise potential. Because it, it says yeah, in some descriptions that you can't go there for this reason, that reason. Um Right. So, like I'm I'm of a I'm of a couple of minds about this. Some people say like, oh, it's deliberately misleading. It makes the game feel bigger than it is. And I'm sure there's a nugget of truth to that. But I'm also I like the idea of you're given a map, but the story's narrative doesn't require you to go to every location on the map because that just feels artificial. That feels very gamey, yeah. which might be silly to argue, well, it's a video game. It should feel gamey. But I like I the idea that, that you're setting up, sorry, one sec, uh, where it's saying, we're going to introduce this. It's, it's just going to be a name on the map for now, but now we can explore it in DLC and a sequel in other media. So I, I think I'm, I'm okay with it, especially if DLC kind of unlocks the gates on a couple of them. What were yeah. you going to say, James? I will say that I... I do appreciate that it's a smaller RPG, 
like to the extent that I only put like uh, 16 hours into it when I got the credits. And that wasn't just doing the critical path because I was doing a bunch of side quests, like maybe not all of them, but I got all of the companions. I uh, ended up like getting the good endings for a lot of the conflicts. I did quite a few of the side quests. Um, it's kind of interesting because like you see so many RPGs these days that focus on being bigger, longer, like more to do. And it, it's actually really nice that there's an RPG like this where it feels like there's not a lot of fat to it, just just the good stuff. And it's like RPG comfort food, I feel like. Yeah. Whenever whenever I talk or think about RPGs that overstate are welcome, I think of The Witcher 3, which I love. But I remember I'm usually a completionist in pretty much every game I play. But in The Witcher 3, when I got to Skellige, and they've got like two dozen of those investigation points and quests that are out in the ocean, I, eventually I just got so burnt out of doing them where I stopped, which is obviously fine. That's why they're optional in the first place. But with the Outer Worlds, it never really feels like you're going to bore yourself. Well, this is my opinion, but by if you're if you're thorough and you explore all the places, you're never going to feel like it's just too much or too overwhelming or too empty or too too bland or samey. Uh, it just it's like you said, it, it trims the fat. It's all, you know, it's it's just kind of all primary content that you know it's never going to bore uh, tire itself out on your experience. All right, I think the last person is Cullen. What, you've got a lot Hello. listed here. What what have you played in the last two weeks? And I'd like to point out that uh, while we are all talking, I just purchased Monster Hunter World on Steam. So I'm ready to know life that. Um, and you, you haven't played the original or the expansion, right? So I did play the original for maybe like two hours on PS4, but I was really busy at the time and all my friends had basically beaten the game by the time I had free time. So I just gave up because those games are not fun to play by yourself. Um, but really just... A lot of my uh, past week has mostly been to uh, playing Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE Encore, which is um, a very interesting game. Uh, it has, has some good ideas, but it's kind of bogged down by a general lack of polish. Uh, I Now, just to set up, have you played, like, what's your experience with SMT and with Fire Emblem? I am the world's biggest SMT shill ever. Okay. I, something about those games. It's shill. Like, well, like something about the like the way those games play is just it checks all the boxes for me. They they just feel good to play no matter what kind of games they are. Usually, I'm I'm always like super in love with them. Even like the super old outdated ones. Like I could go back and play SMT one or two on SNES and still completely fall madly in love with my time. But something and what about, about Fire Emblem? Oh, oh um, I'm a big Fire Emblem fan. I don't, I haven't played as many of the older ones, but that's an, Fire Emblem's another one of those things where it's just playing Fire Emblem games, like even when they're like bad, like Fates, playing them still feels like the act of playing them, the game feel of like moving your units around and like participating in battles, it just feels good. It's fun to do, which is why it's weird because TMS, at least it has a good first impression, but it kind of gets weaker the further you get in um the dungeons aren't good i'd say they start pretty okay and they kind of get worse as time goes on uh there's like a really bad dungeon in the fourth chapter that's basically made me put the game down for a little bit because i just it 
it's basically about like random rooms in teleporting you around and a bunch of really dumb stuff that I just did not have a fun time with. But the combat system. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not super familiar with TMS, uh, but I do know that several times when Atlas games get a re uh, release, they add a bunch of content. But this doesn't seem to be the case here. It's more of a touch up. Yeah, so it's very weird because honestly, I I would have preferred it if they added like you know because everyone always makes you know say atlas oh they add a new girl in and that's it but honestly i would have preferred that to uh what they did here which is not much um they added like one dungeon for you like one floor of a dungeon for you to go through at, like every chapter and you just learn a bit of, like a little side story and you get some costumes and that's it really from my experience so far there hasn't even been boss fights in these ex dungeons which is a bit of a shame is it retailing but, for full price, or is it... Yeah, it's 60 bucks. What? Or you could be crazy like me and uh, import it for 70 bucks just to play it a day early. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely the best version of the game that exists. It's way better than it was on Wii U. Uh, the load times are a significant improvement. Uh, they just... Yeah, the review that Chow wrote, who's not here in the podcast, but he basically... he. It doesn't. It sounds like it should be a footnote, but it sounds like that those load times were so bad in the original release that it ends up becoming a feature when they're improved so drastically. And right. you can skip sessions. Um, it doesn't huge. really do that much because you get so many sessions that you're still sitting there for a decent amount of time. Um, so, Adam, you haven't played the Switch version, but you seem to have an opinion on the original version. Yeah, this session system, the session system kind of kills the game for me in the original version kind of two ways. One is in the original version you couldn't skip the sessions, and what that functionally effectively meant is that by the time you're at the end of the game and you've forged all the different weapons, if I remember correctly, they're called carnages to basically yeah. basically create all the possible links between characters that you can make. At the end of the game, what ends up happening is in the, in the Wii U version is you hit an enemy with an attack they're weak to, like fire or whatever, and then your session system links in, and then you basically have all your characters kind of jumping in after that with an attack, and there's like a, a couple second animation for each one of those. And by that point, you have like seven different characters jumping in in sequence, and then you can also have like these songs break out mid-session. It's only like a part of the song um, that takes up even more time. So it ends up like literally every single attack you do that hits a weakness, you wait for like 30 to 60 seconds each time while you're waiting for all these sessions to take place and you could not skip them. Um, and that and hitting usually... weaknesses is like, because some people be like, oh, don't like hit weaknesses. But like, that's literally like what you do in these games. Yeah. And so, so the, the, I just... whole, the whole SMT press turn system is basically contingent on hitting weaknesses, right? I remember when I was playing the Wii U version, like when I was doing those final dungeons, and those dungeons are pretty long themselves, like outside of combat. And like I would just be like watching YouTube videos or checking Twitter or something while all these sessions take place, and it was just kind of like dull. Um, and at that point, you've also you've seen all the flashiness a hundred times over, so it's kind of lost its sheen by then. But I also think not just that, which is largely, from what I understand, largely improved in the Switch version. Um, but I think just as an actual like design of combat, it's not great either because you describe it as as uh, dominoes. Uh, Josh did actually. Okay. My my issue with it is setting up these sessions. It's very basic. You basically just farm items in the in the dungeons, 
you create carnages that basically create the links between sessions, and that is it. That's it. If you, in, in battle, to set up a session, all you have to do is hit a weak point, and then the game does the rest for you. And, and I, I, I wish there was more that the player actually had to do to, to execute these sessions. They take a little bit of preparation and basically no execution. And I compare it to like other games that have linking systems in games where you link attacks together. One that comes to mind that I played around the same time was uh, Bait and Kaido's Origins, which also has sort of like this linking uh, effect in battle. It's not quite the same, of course, but that system in Bait and Kaido's Origins, you actually have to like smartly play your cards correctly in, in the right order and you have to prepare the deck beforehand. You have to shuffle the deck and play with the cards that you're given dynamically during battle. And it basically actually requires you to dynamically create these links and basically you have to pull them off with some sort of skill <laughs> and the session system in tms it doesn't require that you just as long as you farm the items create the carnage that's all you have to do and, and i do just... need to point out that the way like you have to like um you know uh, get new uh, skills and weapons is you have to go to this place called the bloom palace the problem is Bloom Palace is something you'll be going back and forth between constantly. Um, and they didn't, they really needed to do in this version is like have a button in the menu that would, or like a skill that would instantly warp you to, um, to like Bloom Palace or make it just a bit snappier than it is. Cause the way it is, you have to like go back to your, um, you have to leave the dungeon, make sure you're at a decent progress in the dungeon. So you don't like, or like, you know, a checkpoint, you leave the dungeon you walk all the way to Bloom Palace, then you leave, you walk all the way back to the dungeon, and it's just this constant thing of, like, you make so many trips to Bloom Palace that by the, like, the time... I, like, again, I'm in Chapter 4, and I'm just... I'm pretty drained at the whole game at this point, because it's just... It's really tedious, because the gameplay loop requires you to just do so many back and forth. It, it's just... It's a little weird. They should have added, like, again, like, Bloom Palace in the menu or something, or maybe just something to make that a, go a bit smoother but also it doesn't help that you walk so slow in dungeons. oh yeah i remember that so, so like, in general it feels like you two aren't quite as high on this game as uh, our reviewer chow well it's actually uh, well it's actually kind of funny is uh well even chow kind of had some hesitation toward the game but what's actually kind of amusing in a way and some people actually get mad at stuff like this is our original reviewer really liked the game and gave a nine and then chow didn't like it quite as much and gave an eight <laughs> even though it's pretty much the better game. Obviously, different reviewers, different scores. Oh, yeah. But, you know... I'd that... probably give it a 7. Yeah, it's just... I just, my, again, I just personally wish that there was a little bit more to the session system than there actually is, like, from the player agency standpoint, from actually doing something. I just want... I, I think what really kills it for me is because I could put up with the combat being less than optimal. It is, like, the sessions really get tiresome after a while. But it's just the dungeons. The dungeons oh, yeah. are really bad. Like, it's the only part of the game I could actually say is just bad. Because, like, they start off promising and they get worse with each dungeon. And from what you guys are, like, saying, it's like the end game dungeons just seem really long and also not that fun. So, Colin, yeah. would you say that it would be better if it was a game without any dungeons? That's my... Is, that, uh, is, is this a segue? <laughs> yeah. This is a good. Yes, I would prefer a game without dungeons that is named Saga Scarlet Grace. Oh, I, I did segue. Good segue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I have also been playing nonstop in the last month. And I mean, we've already. 
we've already sung its praises enough, but that game is phenomenal. Yeah. I I was literally playing Saga Scarlet Grace like up to like three a.m. this morning. It's I'm, I'm, it's so addictive. <laughs> I'm probably yeah. gonna go back for another playthrough uh, soon. I'm going Same. to because basically I'm trying to do anything I can to get breaks from TMS. Because I just I I need other games to kind of fill that void. So like, Yakuza, Atelier, and Saga have just been my main like things that distract me from actually making more progress in that game. I keep yeah. telling myself I'm gonna go to Saga, but it's like, oh, first I'm gonna finish this game, and now I have to do the Monster Hunter end game, or and something else comes out. But luckily, it seems like unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, February is kind of quiet in terms of like we have a couple DLC things coming out for certain games that have already released, but. Seems like it's going to be a good period to pick up late, late game 2019 stuff that we missed or other stuff we in our backlogs, things like that. The uh, the big things I'm probably looking forward to February is I'm going to import uh, Persona 5 Scramble and then I'm probably picking up the new Under... Uh, I almost said Undertale. The new Undernight um, expansion or whatever you want to call it. Isn't that going to be day and date in the... Uh, huh? Isn't that going to be day and date in the West though? I think so, yeah. That should be the 20th. Yeah. Oh god, I think that's and I know, and I know. Uh, George is looking forward to Kingdom Hearts DLC. I could cry oh, god. knowing it's so oh, close. That's it's so all sweet. I'm thinking about at the moment. Literally oh, uh, I... four days, but. And then uh, Adam, I know, is looking forward to Fire Emblem DLC, and we'll talk about this more as we go into news. So I guess I'm sort of soft segueing out of this. Is there anything else yeah. in the last couple of weeks that we've uh, been playing that we really want to talk about while we have the, the stage? I will just say one thing. Very quickly. I played the newly released Wizardry game from Exceed uh, on PC. It's a port, a PC port of a PS3 game they released in 2011. And I'm a pretty big fan of dungeon crawlers. And this is probably one of the weakest I've played. It's, no. And I don't mean that just from like the fact that it's a little bit more old fashioned. That's not what I call weak, just being, you know, not so brand new and sparkly. But like the dungeon design in that game is really basic there's a lot of open spaces a lot of symmetry not very many gimmicks not very many things like warp tiles and it kind of just makes it a chore if you're just like literally mapping out these empty rooms and hallways and um i actually mentioned this in our staff chat but like the game is also this wizard first of all this game is wizardry labyrinth of lost souls it's one of the like japanese revival games of the series not one of the classic games um it doesn't have like any boss fights until the very end which I find a very weird design decision for a dungeon crawler. Yeah, Especially like I mentioned this. Designed around that. Yeah, like I mentioned this in the uh, staff chat, but I feel like it's worth kind of like voicing on the podcast. But that seems especially weird to me because at least when I think of dungeon crawlers or DRPGs, blobbers, whatever you want to call them, it feels like boss fights are an essential part of that experience because they're kind of ways of kind of gating you to make sure that your choice of progression for your party composition is working. Yeah. And some it... people kind of state generally that they don't think boss fights as a complete idea are, are good, but I I've, I've generally, maybe there's a specific case or two where you can make an argument and, but in general, I just think it, they're, they're a good tool to be able to test understanding of mechanics or you could stretch or twist them in a bit. And it just seems like in a dungeon crawler, which doesn't have usually a strong narrative through line or, or any, like it's built on the foundation of a robust progression combat. 
I think speaking generally, the cardinal sin with boss fights that is something you should definitely avoid, and some games do this, is if you introduce some new mechanic or break some rule that the rest of the game establishes within a boss fight, if you introduce something new or something or something out of the usual for the rest of the game in a boss fight itself, and that kind of that can be poorly done. Yeah, um, that can be frustrating. And from an artistic standpoint, I think it's the way that the designers get to like really just go all out because boss designs are usually like the best designs in the whole game, especially mm, when it comes to like dungeon point. RPG. Oh man, that just reminds me of Labyrinth of Refrain. I, I was which, waiting for you to mention that. Uh, you're thinking of the same dungeon I'm thinking of, aren't you? I, I think I might be, but I mean the garden one. Tell because Three that towers. whole game has amazing boss designs. Oh yeah, like um kind of a spoiler not really it's um there's i think it's the fourth dungeon in labyrinth of refrain you start off like at a gate next to a house that's like goes into a forest and when you go through the gate you get teleported somewhere and you don't realize until later but what the game's telling you is got shrunk down so you're fighting all these originally small monsters and they're basically the same size or larger than you. And one of the boss monsters in that um, area is actually the equivalent of a Dragon Quest slime. But now he can basically one-hit KO you. And he's one of the super bosses. Yep. I like how we immediately throw back to RPG of the Year podcast 2018, where Adam and James... Hey, that was our, one of our top fives. <laughs> Labyrinth of Repair. Yeah. All right. We, we last chance for that to be in the top five. Anything else? Oh, I was going to say, um, the Atelier Dusk DX uh, collection came out this week, and Eska and Logi is one of the best games ever made. So play I've heard the PC port of that is pretty bad. Oh, no, because the Switch port is quite amazing. Yeah. That's a shame. Better than the uh, TMS Switch port? Oh, like, it, see, that's crazy. I don't want to go on a tangent here, but the Atelier uh, DX... See, switch port is so clean that runs at 1080p and i'm pr it's either like a really nice 30 or 60 it's hard to tell I, i'm i'm not sure but it runs really smooth it looks great and tms looks really blurry like even like undocked and that's such a shame because they're basically games from the same era though to be fair like vita and wii u there's a pretty big difference in the power between those two systems well, no but i'm talking about the uh the ps3 version of eska and loji because nah, well. eska and loji started as a ps3 game and it looks better than it did on ps3 even ah yeah on switch Gus yeah i don't know and, how much uh, coverage Kelly... we'll give to those to those games just because they are kind of up ports but it's good to see that you that they've got your stamp of approval for anyone that's played like ryza and they want to kind of dig into the uh if you want to catalog yeah if you want to play the best atelier <laughs> game play eska and loji all right, we can move on. All right. Okay. So this is a section of a podcast. We're just going to talk about news. And our idea here is that we're going to try to see what are the interesting facets that are be beyond the scope of an article that we put on the website. Before we get into the proper listing here, I do want to give one shout out to something that Josh Torres put together late last year after our RPG of the Year uh, discussions and announcements, is that he did put together a series of nine articles called The Decade Memoirs, where... Uh, I believe all five of us here, except maybe Adam, put up a basically a, an editorial about something from the last 10 years that we thought was important to us. We had someone talk about Fallout. We had someone talk about an Atelier game. We had uh, George talk about Kingdom Hearts, etc. So do go check those out. Decade Memoirs. It's kind of nice because we don't do a lot of these kind of editorial opinion features as often as maybe I would like. 
So I think they're they're really neat, and I do applaud Josh for putting those together. So I just wanted to give those a quick shout out. Definitely. He let me talk about Nier, right. and I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, about two weeks ago, we learned uh, we're going to open up with Pokemon, which is a game that didn't manage to make our RPG of the Year listing for 2019. But they announced basically how they're going to follow up from last year's Sword and Shield retail release. We have our new expansions instead of a third game, instead of a new series of uh, prepared like uh, Ultra Sun, Ultra Moon, or Black or White 2. Instead, we've got basically a expansion DLC listing for Pokemon Sword and Shield. Let's see here. What we have now is an expansion pass for pre-order for $29.99, which will include the Isle of Armor and the Crown Tundra. And it seems like what you get from each of these is going to depend on whether or not you have Pokemon Sword or Pokemon Shield. So let me just kind of open it up without just explaining details. How do we feel about this? Uh, James, I think you're the one that felt maybe the most strongly yeah. about Pokemon Sword and Shield. So how do you feel I'm, about going the DLC route? I'm of two minds here. Because like my number one complaint over anything else with Sword and Shield is I didn't feel like it even had as much content as like any of the 3DS games. Yet it was $20 more expensive. So like on one hand, I'm glad that it's getting more content. But I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that when all is said and done to get, well, yeah, you're going to have to pay $90 to get, quite frankly, what I feel like the game probably should have had content-wise from the beginning. That's kind of a good point. Not, I don't want to really get ticky-tack too much about how many dollars, but if I were to buy Pokemon Black and then Pokemon Black 2, I'm pretty much in the same ballpark as buying Pokemon Sword and getting the expansion. In terms of my investment and and those games have n so like that's a better investment already those games have an actually decent story an online system that actually works like and, i don't want to yeah. i i don't want to get into this again but i feel like it really can't be stated enough the online system in sword and shield is the worst it's ever been it's it's quite astonishing just how bad it is it's kind of uh, amazing you, uh, to me to to see like how negatively received Pokemon is at the moment. Like when um, Sunshine come out, of deals all that uh, national deck stuff, which I, I won't put my opinion in on. But like seeing how mediocre most people think it is, it's just such a shame. Like because the, yeah. the new Pokemon are actually kind of cool. Like it's a cool. Yeah, this, this this was their chance to kind of hit a home run. And while some people are positive on the games, it's definitely not. You know, it hasn't hit that sort of. You know, way of inflection where it's like, here it is, here's console Pokemon. Some people obviously think highly of the game, so it didn't quite, the splash isn't there that could have been, I guess. I yeah. still need to beat it. I never even got to the first, uh, uh, I guess, gym leader. I'm not sure what they do in that one, but oh, I had so like an okay time with it, but. Yeah. Um, so the way the online system in Pokemon works, and I actually explained this in my review, but. Um, so it's called YCOM, and instead of being able to directly trade with someone, or directly battle with someone, or directly make a party with someone for a max raid battle, what you have is when you're connected online, or even when you're not collected online, well, connected online, you, um, you'll get these little stamp pop-ups in the bottom corner of your screen, like showing what people are doing and what people want to do, like either around you or online. And when you see those, you can open up YCOM and you'll see a list of what people want to do. And then you choose from that list to interact with people, to trade, battle, or do max raid battles. And 
if you want to do like a max raid battle yourself and host one, you can't directly do it with anyone. You can set a passcode so people can search by passcode. But because the Switch doesn't have a native messaging feature, you need to like coordinate over something like Twitter or Discord with somebody that you know is also playing the game in order to directly trade, directly battle, or do max raid battles. And especially for max raid battles, that's like the only like surefire way to get multiplayer going with those things because for all but the most like popular of max raid pokemon that people are going to be grinding out it's basically you're never going to have anyone join your parties because for the majority of people that are actually playing max raid battles like now they're they've got specific pokemon they want to do and if you're not going for a pokemon that most people want you're basically sol it's just so one one key uh, feature of this expansion, this this pass, is that if if a Pokemon appears in it, you can bring it over from a previous game or from Pokemon Home. So it seems like that's kind of, uh, I guess, ammunition against this national deck stuff. But at the same time, it still sort of feels weird. It just feels it feels weird. I guess I I, I don't I'm not, I, I don't have a more elegant way of putting that. I'm also two minds about that because it's like people are saying. Well, of course, Pokemon Home is going to be a paid service, but here's the problem with that. So, yeah, quite a few Pokemon are being added back into the game with the expansion pass, but it's only 200. So there's still something like, what, 300 Pokemon or so, or something around there? Like, it's at least another 200 that just aren't in the game, even with the expansion pass, and... If you have one, if you have those Pokemon, and let's say they're your favorites, the only way to make sure that you still have access to them is to move them over to Pokemon Home. Because I have no no uh, trust that Pokemon Bank's going to be around for all that much longer. Pay a subscription and hope that eventually those Pokemon are going to be available in a, in a later Pokemon title. And it's like you can say, "Oh, of course they're going to be available later," but until you see that, it just doesn't sit right with me because it feels like you're almost being extorted in order to make sure that you still have access to like what may be one of your favorite Pokemon that you, I don't know, spent hours upon hours like shiny breeding with the perfect egg moves and the best IVs and stuff like that. And it just, I don't and know. It's difficult like, because there's really no way to, to gauge precedent because you could say, well, Nintendo's never done like a second season like a second part of a season pass except for maybe smash bros extended fighter pass where they're going to add six more but then you say well this isn't really nintendo anyways it's pokemon company and creatures inc and having a having a, a pass for a pokemon game anyways is out of precedent so when and how and where are we going to be able to add more yeah. is it sword two or sword you know whatever's next who knows it's just like you said it's kind of a big kind of black box now, I don't want to be super negative, because I think it's obvious, even for people that liked Sword and Shield, that the games were rushed. So, if the only way they were able to get this content into the game, to justify it to the Pokemon company, was to pay for DLC, then I'm glad that the content is there, and I'm sure that there's going to be a holiday bundle of some sort that's Sword and Shield plus the expansion pass for 60 bucks, which... Okay, great. I feel like... So I haven't 
played the expansion passes yet because obviously like not even the first half is going to be available until i think it was summer but there i feel like, like there was just a small little free preview with that with that snorlax yeah slope yeah yeah but it's just like i'm glad that the content is coming i just really wish that i could be more positive about it considering the state of the uh Main it game, actually is kind of far out. Like even the even the first part of it, the Isle of Armor is June 2020. Yeah. So this is still yeah, several months wild. away. And then the Crown Tundra says fall of 2020. So is this in place of another Pokemon game? It's kind of interesting to think about. That's why I'm saying I'm expecting what's them. What's in the do queue for bundle. Pokemon this fall? Right. I'm, I'm expecting a bundle, so they're gonna treat it like a Sword Shield too, and it's just gonna be the game plus the DLC, and that's gonna be sixty bucks for like the holidays or something. That's why. That's what I'm assuming, anyways. All right. Any last uh, thoughts on Pokemon? This is he. Sh he said. She said. Pardon me. <laughs> this is just hearsay, but um, you don't think that maybe some of that content was left out. Like was supposed to be in the full release of Pokemon Sword Shield, do you? Uh, I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I think I kind of... I already said that I think that Sword and Shield was rushed. Mm. So I wouldn't be shocked if some of this content, even if it wasn't originally planned for the full game, maybe they were considering be it, but because of deadlines, they couldn't have afforded the uh, um the resources to put in the game at launch that's why i'm saying that i'm glad the content's here it just feels like that if the game had another year of development maybe not all of this dlc would have been in the base game but i can't shake the feeling that at least some of it would have been you always kind of want to be careful if you're playing a game and you see like a seam where you see like a part where it's not as polished as it could be was it always out of scope? Did it was it in scope that I got pulled out last minute? You just you yeah. just kind of don't ever know the, the circumstance of why it is. Yeah, like I'm, I'm never, and you don't want to guess. I'm, I'm trying so. to, yeah, I'm like I'm trying to be trepidatious, but I think you and, you and guys understand what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Personally, all right, not to oh, go ahead. prolong the topic, but I I kind of don't mind how they're doing it, um, because I I'm not a massive pokemon head i don't really know all that much with sword and shield but it seems a better way of doing it to me than charging full price for another thing I i'm arguing the other end of it obviously i, I may yeah. not know anything about it but just on paper that seems like yeah the, the, the idea of going into a store or even just on the eShop this fall and just getting an expansion to your existing game rather than going and buying sword 2 I think on paper that sounds kind of convenient, but obviously it kind of depends on do, are they going to have another retail product along with it? Like James yeah. says, we just don't know. I I definitely I, prefer this over to like making an ultra version. Oh yeah, I want to mm. be perfectly clear. My my quote unquote issues with the DLC has nothing to do with the format itself. It, I wouldn't have any issues with the DLC if it wasn't for the fact that the original game felt rushed and had a bit of a lack of content okay. i think, yeah, I think this feels this feels like a correction in your eyes rather yeah. than like an expansion okay all right so on to the next topic before george can delay it again uh in the last couple of weeks we've had <laughs> kind of two high profile even outside of the rpg space just two high profile delays uh in both final fantasy 7 remake 
and Cyberpunk 2077, which were originally going to come out in March and April, respectively, have been moved back, in, in the case of Final Fantasy, one month to April 10th. And in the case of Cyberpunk, all the way back to September, so five-month delay. So obviously this is a big shakeup for our site, for our coverage, for everyone's planned schedules for the year, for people looking forward to each or both games. So, uh, George, what do you think about Final Fantasy moving back from March to April? Just one month, but still kind of stings, doesn't it? It, it's it's a it's a massive shame because I was really looking forward to it, but the more time the better. Like it's the same. I feel the same way about Cyberpunk, even though that's a much bigger delay. Like uh, a delayed game is eventually good. A rush game is always bad, isn't it? Like right. It's a and shame. Just but... and like there's been other like this year has had a fair number of those. Like outside of the RPG space, we had uh, the Marvel game has been had been delayed and then before this year in the rpg space we saw vampire the masquerade get pushed back we saw crystal chronicles remastered get pushed back but some people would say that some people would say that march is is still packed with with animal crossing with doom with stuff that's kind of outside of our purview but obviously several of us are going to be playing so i feel like oh yeah yeah. pokemon mystery dungeon that's also an rpg oh yeah well when was that one slated for uh march 5th Six. Uh, six, yeah. So that's so that's the crazy thing. We've got things backing out of March and April, but then when you look back at it, they're still pretty pretty jam-packed, especially if you include stuff like uh, the DLC that's coming in February for things like Fire Emblem that are people still going to be playing through through March. Well, still free like PC, that we'll get to, there, get to that later. Oh, yeah, that's that's also in March, which just was announced just yesterday, right? So Maybe the uh, switchboard so of Cold Steel 3. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of up in the air. But so, so March is still packed, despite the fact that Final Fantasies have moved back. The weird thing that I'm thinking about is that, so Cyberpunk and CD Projekt has had a big presence at E3 and at Gamescom the last two years, which luckily we've had people from RPG site able to attend and you know write previews and see footage. And the plan was that it would be out in April before any of those events, but now it's going to be past symbol. So you wonder if cyberpunk's going to make another showing it, what if, they, if it is what are they going to show like because it obviously wasn't in the original plan or if they're just going to be quiet this year it's just interesting to think about just a slightly I'm... interesting thing like the cyberpunk date for april um was given at e3 last year and that was one of like the first 2020 dates we had and i was kind of set there for a while and then you know so they had a lot of you know leeway up to that lead way up to that and then they delayed it just slightly interesting that there was one of the first 2020 dates we had and then it didn't even make it um, um i think we're going to definitely see a lot about cyberpunk at e3 uh what i think is going to happen is that i i when did they announce that the ray tracing support was going to be in the game i don't remember. i don't remember offhand sorry i think it was, it was, it was some point last year e3. around that media blitz yeah yeah, I'm going to guess that since it, it it's pretty clear that at least NVIDIA's new graphics cards are going, going to be out before the game is out, and probably AMD's new graphics cards, which are supposed to have hardware ray tracing support, I'm going to guess that they're going to take this opportunity to show off the game with the ray tracing visuals at E3 since... Theoretically, at least NVIDIA will have hardware that will be able to show that off uh, with a better performance at like higher resolutions. 
And speaking more generally, people on the console front, this is going to be pushing up real close to that expected, you know, November November crossover to those. So you wonder if if somehow putting Cyberpunk as this cross-gen experience is is that going to come into play at all? Even if not by release, if just very I doubt after, it. Things like that, you know. Yeah, I, I, I doubt, it. doubt that. Oh, all right. Maybe I just I'm feel in, like I'm I just... on an island here. I feel like Cyberpunk has been de in development for a long time, and um, I don't know. I just I don't think they're working on making it a, a next gen game as well. I, you know, I don't have anything to go off of here other than, you know, this has been their project for, since what? When did Witcher Three release? Two thousand thirteen. Um, Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay, not as old as I was imagining. But but, but yeah, Cyberpunk was originally announced in like twelve or thirteen, but then it went radio silent after that original uh, kind of yeah I'm, theming trailer. I'm actually of two minds about this because we just had like uh, Microsoft announce that like none of their games for the first few years of the Xbox Series X or well, I just I guess it's just called the Xbox is going to be exclusive, and that does that like. What does that mean on Microsoft's front? Does that mean that they have an API to make it easier to support cross-generation titles? I mean, yeah. If Cyber, it, if it, is, it gonna, is it going to be a more? Uh, go ahead. Sorry, I don't mean to talk over you. Go I ahead. mean, like Cyberpunk already got a Windows version, obviously, and the, the Xbox, especially the next-gen Xbox, is going to be as like super close to PC hardware. So, I mean, yeah, it's like an extra skew, but at least on the Xbox side of things. I would not be shocked if I'm not sure if it would be a like separate version for the new Xbox, but I'm sure that there there will be some enhancements for the next generation oh, Xbox. So you think it's going to be a more general version of Xbox Series X, like playing the game on a better Xbox computer. One X? Yeah, yeah. So basically, you, I, you I, might I, be able to put your Xbox One disc of Cyberpunk 2027, 2077 into your xbox yeah and it's like some, x model. it's like something that microsoft has been doing for a couple of years now like you can buy xbox 360 games that are backwards compatible that have their own unique case that has xbox 360 and xbox one on the uh the case itself and like and i do feel i do feel are, obligated to mention here that rumors do point that ps4 games will also be back compatible ps5 so we might see something maybe not the same but equivalent or at least in the same kind of Series yeah, and, and considering so, that they're on the same architecture, like at least on the CPU front of things, though obviously the CPU is a lot stronger on both the new new consoles. I'm I'm thinking that it'll probably be I won't say no harder than supporting like a PS4 Pro or an Xbox One X patch, but I'd imagine that it's a similar situation to that. And it will also be interesting just to wrap this back around because Final Fantasy VII Remake, even though none of these details have been concretely like ironed out, we we know or expect it to be a one-year exclusive on PS4, so or, or at least yeah. some sort of timed window where once it's no longer exclusive, is it going to show up on both next-gen consoles at the same time? And then on PC, you know, it's just kind of... That's, that's a these really are good both, point. I didn't even thought I, about we're, that. We're, uh, we're basically approaching that era of... Well, not only are we approaching that, that time of the generation where things start to become cross-gen, but the lines between gens are much more blurred now than they were not just like also. even the lines between gens but like the lines between platforms like just the other day we had that like news well rumor but it's jason schreier so news break about horizon zero dawn probably releasing on pc death stranding is releasing on pc this year and, and then you wonder if like 
if there's PC it's, enhancements, would they show up on a PS5 re-release? Stuff like that, yeah. where it just ends up... Well, also, there there ends the, up being kind of like this feedback from port to up port to revision to remaster that shows up in another play. You know, it's just... The blinds are definitely blurry. Go ahead, Adam. There's also the case of Final Fantasy VII Remake. We know this is only the Midgar part, and we assume there's going to be a later part, and that will be probably well into the PS5 and, and Xbox Series X console life. And at when, let's just say, hypothetically, Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two starts to release, will they re-release Final Fantasy VII Remake Part One on PS5? You know? Yeah. So I'd imagine they. It's, would, it's a they, lot of what ifs, isn't it? They might just be able to patch in, like I guess, PS5 support to the PS4 version. It kind of depends because, like, we don't know what's gonna go on with that. Yeah. yeah. But it would be kind of nice because, like, pro support is patched in for plenty of games. It would be kind of neat. I mean, I'm sure they would love to just re-release and make a bunch of money that way. But if they could just patch in support for the newer consoles, Final Fantasy VII Remake Royal Edition. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then we've kind of teased this a couple times, but uh, one of the bigger releases in February isn't a retail release, but it's back to the idea of a DLC pass. We've got. Fire Emblem Three Houses, Cindered Shadows, coming February 13th. And this is the last section of the DLC pass for Three Houses, which obviously came out last summer. And obviously it seems like it's the most substantial because up to this point, we've uh, been talking been about... <laughs> right. And yeah, it's been costumes. It's been little tiny additions. Uh, but now we've got this big meaty this big meaty kind of addition. So Adam, you've probably, I'm making a guess here that you put more time in a fire and bloom than anyone here. So what do you think about cindered shadows and the ashen wolves and this side story? Well, I mean, I guess starting off to talk about the DLC as a whole, there's been three waves so far of DLC of this four wave past. And to be honest, it hasn't been much. Um, you got a couple of costumes, um, uh, you have like some bonus auxiliary maps that give you more money than usual. The most substantial thing so far is they added into the Black Eagles route, um, uh, Juritsa as a character. Um, and that was free, wasn't it? Well, I'm actually trying to remember. Juritsa was free. And Anna was Anna, part of the paid. Yeah, it was paid. The, the Juritsa thing is weird. I kind of feel like that should have been there the whole time. It, I remember I played that route first and it felt weird that it that he was absent like they even mentioned like in the game like he's around but he's not um so that 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 part you know i guess not even part of the dlc pass so they added anna who doesn't have like supports or like story relevant content other than one paralogue she's just kind of a character you can use which is fine um but otherwise there hasn't really been a lot so like this is basically the reason to get the expansion pass is for this and just to uh, refresh people who maybe don't know how it works from what we can tell is that it's a side story that you access separately from the main game. So you literally, in the main menu, you, ch you click Cinder Shadows side story or whatever. And then you do like this this extra story with these four new characters, um, part of this mysterious fourth house to the monastery. That Raya uh, just shoved into the basement. Yeah. <laughs> so there's these four new characters. And the maps here, from what we, tell, from what we can tell from a Japanese uh, information release about it is that you, it, it, it it's more classic Fire Emblem. It seems like it doesn't have the calendar style. Um, you don't any, you don't really recruit any characters uh, in this mode. You basically just play as these four characters. It seems like in this little side story. Um, it did also the information release also mentioned that there are going to be like more map gimmicks and things like that. 
Um, so it might be a little bit tougher, but otherwise you can do the same settings like hard or normal mode, casual or classic mode. But then once you complete the side story, then you can go back to the main game and then in one of the other paths that you're already familiar with, you can then recruit these four characters into the main game. And I assume they probably don't do much in the main game other than you can support with them. Um, I don't think they've announced this, but I believe it's shown up in like uh, data mining. You can have like endings and pairings with them as well um, with these four new characters. So now this is going to be a very weird uh, parallel. It's very weird. I'm going to talk about one of 2018's releases, Pathfinder Kingmaker. So very different genre of game, but it had this DLC add-on called Varnhold's Lot, where it was a side story that you played from the menu. And then at the end of that, it kind of remembers what you did in that side story and kind of saves it. And then when you approach the appropriate part in your main file, you kind of import it and it says, this is what you get based on what you did in that side story. So it seems kind of similar to that. And when this was first announced, it was kind of like, how is this going to be integrated? Is it going to have a different integration for each route or things like that? And a lot of that is still kind of up in the air. And we didn't learn until a specific YouTube trailer's description. I think it was the Nintendo of America one where it actually yeah. said that was the first we learned that it was going to be a side story import. So it'll be kind of weird to see how how exactly it's implemented. We got a general idea now, but obviously we won't know the specifics until and not like, and not to get out. into spoilers, but I'm a little bit curious what this is going to add to like the world building or storyline of the game. In the main game itself, after having completed, and I won't get into spoilers, but after having completed the four routes, I, there's still a few lingering questions I feel about the, the the enemies in this game, the villains, the people who slither in the dark. I feel like there's a few things about them that weren't fully expanded upon. It's especially obvious um, at the end of the Blue Lions route, there's actually like a thing in the very final level of that game that seems like a, like a loose end with some character in that final level that flees. And it never really touches up upon that. And I'm wondering, I don't really see how this new house might relate to that, if it does at all. Um, it's, so it's one I, of those I, things it'll be where interesting it's like, to see. Right. It's like loose ends don't have to be tied up. Like sometimes it's okay for things to be somewhat open-ended, but then when you're told that they're going to be followed up on, you're wondering like, okay, so I guess it was intended that, that it was always going to be followed up on, or is it? It's, it's just it's just a weird. Cause I don't think it needs. Sometimes you don't need everything to be absolutely. I I do, I do feel like that the, specific loose end though. I mentioned. That specific loose end I mentioned. I do feel like that is very deliberate. Like it doesn't feel like it's just something they you know they didn't explain, uh, you know, robustly. It, it literally felt like like what is this even doing here? Like why they they had to include this in here? But also it may, it also maybe sort of reminds me of a, a Fire Emblem Path of Radiance also had a couple of loose ends at the end of that game, and that was even before we knew that game was going to have a sequel, uh, and those loose ends were largely addressed in the sequel. Um, so maybe it's maybe it's just something that sort of left in, like in, in in the case we decide to follow up on this game, maybe not in the DLC, but in the future, maybe we'll address it then. Who knows? Here's our <laughs> launching points. We can follow this and we can follow that. All right. Yeah. So I haven't played through the, even a fourth house yet. So I got I have some catching up to do. But it sounds like, as I mentioned, February is going to have a decent amount of space to do some catching up before the March onslaught begins. Uh, imagine if. Uh... Final Fantasy was still in March as well, so that would be... Right. <laughs> okay. All right, so this isn't something that we've covered specifically on the site, but obviously is relevant to us. But 
Uh, GameIndustry.biz reported last week, or earlier this week on Monday, that Sony and PlayStation will not participate in E3 2020. And this is obviously the second year in a row where that's been the case. So obviously PlayStation is a home of several JRPGs. A lot of our favorite series and uh, games outside of the RPG space are on Sony consoles or are Sony supported. And we've got people that attend E3. And so this affects you know our coverage here. So obviously we're very interested in this. So uh, James, how do you feel about Sony going two for on skipping E3? I uh, can't blame them considering how they treated our like press info last year. Uh, yeah. Right. So obviously what James is referring to there is the the leak of pretty much any any media or influencer that attended. It's out in the open and able to find if if you so inclined. And f- for some people, Please that's don't. basically no. It's no better than being doxed. So. And then it seems it like we lost. don't have the details. Because they pass home addresses yeah. and like phone numbers and stuff. All right. I, so... I should also just mention for people who maybe don't know, this is more than just them not doing a press conference. They aren't there at all. Um, like some, a lot of companies don't do anything in like the presentations you watch online, but they'll have a they'll have a floor presence and you, they have demos, they have representatives and information. But this isn't that. This is Sony. Uh, no presence at all anywhere which is weird because the two companies that i think of are ea and microsoft or ea has also divorced themselves from e3 they do this separate thing ea play in a similar location and nearby on the same time scale and then microsoft even less further away closer there they'll still they still use the e3 like heading and titles but they're they're actually like across the street and they're not on the show floor like they're not in the convention center it's very weird because like Microsoft isn't technically there, but they pretty much are. And then EA is one step further removed. Right. So it's like they have a presence, but they're also kind of half a half foot out the door, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Did Sony it seems... even have a presence last year, though? Because I no, thought they no, were they also didn't. completely they gone. They did not. Yeah. So I was like, I wasn't expecting them to ever come back. Well, so there obviously some in... thought, there was Go some ahead. thought that maybe last year they just didn't have a note they didn't have enough to show and then this year with the new console coming out they'd come back some people were maybe wondering or hoping that even but that's clearly not the case it's so for, for me especially on, i don't uh, know if this is go ahead george uh the fact like e3 for me uh, maybe it's because i'm on the other side of the world but it's always seemed like the thing to go to the thing you do as a gaming journalist you know like that's that's the dream Well, that's actually kind of interesting to hear from you because you're closer to like EGX and Gamescom than us who are based in the States. And Mm. you still say E3 is the place. I don't know why. I guess that's just always the, uh, that was always the biggest one uh, for me. But it's it's interesting to hear that you kind of agree because that's kind of the, that's kind of the inclination I have too, having grown up in the States. So So obviously for people that are watching trailers. There's probably no uh, chance of going. Right, but now if the people that are used to watching trailers or just getting announcements, they might say, "Oh, the direct is, you know, the the direct style, the the state of play style, the the or just like the just like Nisa did yesterday, which we'll get to, just announce at a PAX or other smaller events style. Like, is E3 necessary? And obviously, everyone's going to have their own opinion. But for like a site for coverage and also for people who are influencers, it is a chance to like talk behind the scenes demo games you know interview uh developers face to face so we've obviously had a chance to do that we've been fortunate so it's not just oh sony no longer needs a stage to to show off their video clips trailers that's what george is getting at 
right. that's what George is getting at, and you never even let him finish. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> or what did I miss? Go ahead uh, and finish your thought, George. No, it's gone now, long gone. Um, but it's just a shame, isn't it? Because it's to have something so, like, e even people who aren't gamers know about E3. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd say to friends, oh, I'm just going to watch the conferences. They'd be like, oh, my God, cool. And that is where, in my life, I've had the most relation to people who aren't gamers but sort of know about it. They'd know what E3 is, so I'd be like, this is the goal. This is where I want to be in the future. And now it's like, well, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> That's just gone. Yeah. Yeah. And that it was seems like we don't really have much more to think about this. Well, there it's, was it's obviously there was a bummer, article... but... There was one article from, uh, I don't forget the site name, but it was Mike Futter who wrote it. Um, probably, probably uh, GameDaily.biz. They're kind of yeah, that's uh, it. That's adjacent that's it to GameIndustry.biz. Uh, and he basically said that the ESA, who runs E3, was going to try something new with like these like partnerships between publishers and influencers and about presenting the content at E3 through these influencers. Um, and it seemed like it took things, it, we, what we were given were just like slides, so not a whole lot to go off of, just bullet points, but it seemed like it took things just a little too far about like advertising at E3 through not, not company people, but just, you know, online popular influencer people. And it just, it seemed kind of weird, like a weird direction to take E3. That was not like officially announced in any public way. It's just this gamedaily.biz site reported on this plan that ESA had. And I think that also was something that we saw and we were like, we don't really want to do that. We're like, could you imagine like if we partner with Exceed and like they, they announced something through us or something. And like, we have a relationship with some of these publishers that we work with a lot because they release a lot of games. I mean, talk to them about it, but that's just a step too far. <laughs> I yeah. Know. I mean, I was going to say, well, we basically were the first ones to hear about the Cold Steel 3 translation. I mean, obviously, we're lucky enough to be kind of half fan site, half media site, where we are able to yeah. interview people like, like we've, we, like I've spoken to, to people at Obsidian, and we've had other interviews like Adam's had with Kawaz, not Kawazu. Uh, who did you interview? Yeah, Saga. Oh, what's going on? So, but obviously, none, 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 nothing that, and Alex is in here to speak more formally to it, Alex Donaldson, our editor in chief, but nothing that we run is uh, promoted or uh, partnered in any way. Obviously, having uh, avenues like E3 to be able to speak to developers and speak to artists and speak to producers, you know, we, we do it because it's something we're interested in and passionate about, but to make it some more formal corporate thing, just it's not something that I personally feel comfortable with. So I do understand kind of where that trepidation comes from. Uh, so here's something that I think might be worth talking about. So, so Adam, Brian, you've both been to E3, obviously, but you guys haven't, hadn't gone when it was still press only, didn't you? No, my I first year was the first year they did a uh, public. And to me, it makes it just feel like a PAX, which I'm fine with, uh, mostly, but I'll never have yeah. a true experience. So, thing, Adam, guess. did you ever get to go to E3 when it was, uh... Nope. Huh. For many years, I was basically the one in the home base doing E3 news rather than going. Okay, then what I'll say is, is that E3 has definitely changed since when it was, uh, press only. Um, the first, I think, two years I went, it was press only, and... 
it's well they definitely have improved it in the last couple of years since they've opened it up to the um to the public uh it's a very different vibe when you know that everyone there is strictly for business and you don't have to worry about like if you like nowadays if you don't have an appointment with a company you're kind of sol because of all the all the lines unless you're like well i guess we're we have a better chance of things like if we want to play like an xc game if we somehow didn't have an appointment well easier enough to easy enough to play those that we're, we're pretty lucky that we have a pretty good relationship with the especially the developers the publishers that, re that release a lot of rpgs that yeah. um for example i was able to get those backroom interviews with things like kawazu on the saga series uh and things like that uh got to talk got to, i got to see final fantasy 7 remake in a closed room and things like that um but yeah. it's not the same as being strictly uh industry only yeah it's just something i wanted to kind of kind of put out there because it it really is a different vibe and yeah like I i'm not sure like i think the way that e3's at now is all right especially since they've ironed out the kinks i don't think it's a great idea for them to make another drastic change when it feels like besides the obvious security issues that uh they finally started to kind of hit that happy middle ground it feels like it's it just needs just that, um... polishing and reconfiguring more than it needs overhaul. And it depends if you had if you asked Alex, he'd say it needs to move location, but it's not here or there. What were you gonna say, Colin? Oh, I, I just kind of added on a bit earlier. I was trying to find a moment to say, but um, it is it is a bit of a shame. Like I got into all this stuff probably when E three is like on the decline, I'd say, and I I probably would have really liked to have gone back <laughs> when like it was press only, but. I mean, it does still seem like it'd be a neat little convention. But... I will say that one thing that at least when I've covered E3 for us, that's been a bit different. Like a lot of stuff at E3 is still like press only after hours, like parties. Like oh, there's okay. the unofficial stuff like mm -hmm. at like uh, bars and whatnot. And like Adam and Brian can both like attest to this. Like everyone kind of congregates on the same bar uh, or same bars but um, there's also stuff like the indie mix that happens like every year that's on like a hotel like like top floor and whatnot and cool stuff like that. But um, that's neither here well, nor there. Well, I've also attended PAX both East and West as just a fan, no no coverage at all, and it does have a very similar vibe. But and th those also are good avenues to you know you it's not network. as formalized as e3 but you can network you can if you know that a publisher is going to have a presence you can talk to them and you know work out an interview or a meeting or even like a demo so i think it's okay for e3 to kind of shift in that direction a little bit uh some people might you know be more i don't know what the word is derogatory and say oh it's just pack southwest or whatever but i think i think there's an avenue there for it i think it's i think it can work but obviously yeah. you know, as experienced like people actually go on several like, years maybe it like because I, I don't want to imply that it's going to die completely but things do seem to be changing quite a lot about it i would like to go at least once before it like possibly just stops being a thing and to be honest always... i i mean just as a site like us and we are a non-localized podcasting from all around the, you know the u.s and with george in england here um 
it's nice to actually like for people like running a site like this where we work with each other every single day to actually like see each other in person. Oh, that's, that's actually a good point that I feel <laughs> yeah. silly that we that we put off. Like we don't see each other except for you know E three or potentially other chances to meet at like a PAX. Or Rub it in my like face. Yeah. Like, I know that. Yeah, like I know that uh, Brian and I. Stop like, being British, God. Like I know <laughs> that. Uh, like I know that Brian and I, like when he was doing a uh, press thing for uh, Obsidian a few months back, uh, since he was going to be around the area where I go to go to school, I like met up with him for like dinner. But like that's like once in a blue moon. That doesn't happen very often. So, so so even independent of press access or industry hours or whatever, just for our website to get together and see each other in person is it's it's a useful tool. So that's kind of one of those unvoiced benefits of having something like E3. And obviously for yep. George's sake, I am interested at some point to attending EGX or, or Gamescom or something like that. So uh luckily there's yep. there's plenty of avenues. Or I guess if you want to get, you know, if I wanted to meet with uh Kite, you know, around in Southeast Asia, go to Tokyo Game Show in Japan or something. Oh man, I I, I want to go to Tokyo Game Show on these days. To to go back and correct something I said earlier though, like obviously the tone of what I said earlier was very like, oh Ether is dying, Ether is dead. It isn't. It's it's in the it's not in the best state at the moment. And I feel like Sony not being there doesn't help with that in terms of people's excitement for it. But I, I I would love it to keep going for years. I'd like it, I think still... I think in general people are kind of predisposed to to consider the most dramatic outcome. Like you, you sort of see this whenever a studio head like changes jobs or changes companies. Like, oh no, is is Studio A now in trouble because so and so moved to Studio B? And most of the time, it's it's just change. It's it, you know, things. It, it's not people. I think have to kind of reel it in just a little bit yes the most dramatic option outcome is possible but is it the most likely i would argue no it's not usually the most likely so e3 is definitely going through a change but uh i don't think you know anything's going to be an immediately different it's going to be something we're going to observe over time rather than observe immediately distinct one year adjacent to its its most next year at least that's, that's yeah, just completely. my opinion all right, so back on the games front and talking about something that was announced at PAX South yesterday, uh, yesterday or the day before, yesterday, uh, Nice America had a small panel where we didn't really know what they were going to talk about. The, the title of the panel was Publishing from Console to PC. So I guess we did have a good inclination because both announcements that they presented are related to PC offerings. So part one. They announced that East 8 Lacrimosa of Donna, which had been on PC for two years now, is getting a significant rework and update, almost to put it online with the uh, the Exceed published East games that have been on the service. Uh, and then the wrong. second update, yeah. And then the and the second uh, piece of news was that Cold Steel 3, which obviously released just for PlayStation 4 in the West last year, will also be showing up on PC around the same time that it that it goes to Switch, which was announced a couple months ago. So well, let me, let me clarify this. And Cold Steel 3. Um, Go ahead. Uh, uh, so uh, Cold Steel 3 released on PlayStation 4 uh, in the United States uh, last September. October. October. All right. I forgot it was delayed. <laughs> um and then they announced a Switch version of the game. And that version has already been dated in Japan for March 19th, 2020. But Nice America has not actually confirmed that date in the West yet. You, usually their Switch ports are like really either release on the same day or very close. So it should be around there, I would expect, but they haven't actually said. And it's um, weird because the people porting it are like 
I uh, like an English based company. Yeah, that's who they. That's who. That's how. That's how who it usually is. Um, and then they announced the PC version is March twenty third. So it's possible that the English Switch version will also be around late March. They just haven't said. Yeah. I hope they say something soon about that because I'd really like to play that in March. I'm sure they will. Like, um, kind of a tangent, but uh, had a short uh, back and forth with uh, one of uh, Nisa's uh, PR people on Twitter, and he basically said, oh, yeah, we have more announcements soon. So. Well, obviously, some people were shooting for a Yeast 9 announcement, a Cold Steel 4 announcement, or at the further end, a, I'm going to screw this up, Hajimari no Kiseki, or, or Cross, you know, people kind of get their, their minds get ahead of no them. No way that actually Hajimari feasible. going to be announced. All right. Like, but, pe- but at least, but people at least think may- maybe Yeast 9, maybe, because obviously that came out on PS4 in Japan last year, but yeah. hasn't, not, uh, nothing has been announced. Like, we don't even know if, if, if so is going to be the Western wanna... publisher. Yeah. So here's something I want to say, and this is, definitely a little bit of a stretch but during durante's um ama on reddit's r slash games uh somebody asked like how many other pc ports is your company working on or can you divulge that and he gave an answer more than zero but less than four wink which if you're a trails fan like three of the games that we're waiting for is trails from zero um Trails to Azure and uh, Trails of Cold Steel 4. And just to so, back up, Durante is the uh, screen name of Peter Tillman, who is a contractor who has worked with XSEED with their PC ports of Falcom titles. And now basically this and is he's currently doing that he's that he's worked with Nisa for uh for their now PC Cold offerings. So he yeah, yeah, so he's basically a very a known figure in the in the Falcom fandom and he, basically his reputation is very strong in terms of how well those yeah, like, have been. Go ahead. Oh, I, I just hope he works on like an East 9 port to his PC because from what I hear, that game barely runs at 60 frames a second on PS4. Yeah, it it's it's embarrassing. Like, I haven't played it too much since they patched it, apparently, but the performance still isn't great. And at least, like, on launch day, the game had worse frame rate dips on a PS4 Pro than Ease 8 did on a Vita. Hmm. Which is not good. <laughs> I did jump into the Ease 8 update on PC yesterday. I've already beaten the game, so I'm probably not going to replay it or anything. But it's it is nice. It's it's much cleaner now. Uh, they fixed some of the lingering issues with things like shadows, which never looked good on the PC port. And when I played the game, I did have a few crashes, and that seemed like it was a standard thing. And I'm going to assume that those were fixed up as well. Well, it they they were actually clear. They were actually uh, specifically mentioned in the patch notes that some crash. Issues yeah. With- I just can't you know, say that I played the game. Right. I just can't say I now, played the game I did, in its entirety yeah. again. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention was that uh, I should have maybe let off with this, but East 8 on PC now has an experimental co-op mode, which is something that Durante in his Reddit AMA basically said was just a hobbyist project of his. He kind of joked about being able to add co-op and then just decided, you know what, I want to do this. I don't think any of us, you know, this, this was announced yesterday, so I don't think any of us have tried it yet, but... The idea of a Yeast game almost playing like a Tales of series game, where obviously since E seven they they have party you know implementation where co op has kind of been the sort of gee whiz that would be swell, and now now it actually is a possibility. So, how do we think about co op Yeast games? I think it's cool, and um, 
really not much else to say about that because it's, uh, right. it's all, it's sorry I, I didn't i didn't leave you much of a, a much of a brief window to really comment much but it's local only but luckily on steam they do have this remote play together thing where it, they basically implement the steam streaming uh, operation to turn any local co-op into online co-op so Maybe Adam and I, if we're bored, or you and Cullen, James and Cullen, will test yeah. this out. James It'll be and interesting I are, to like, see. Looking to try that out at some point because I'm very yeah. vocal about E8 being one of my favorite games of all time. Yep. And I'm it is kind of interesting though that that Durante suggested that you know he had to get Falcom sign off on this, and he got it, or at least enough to to implement it in an experimental fashion. So I just think yeah, this could pay this could pay dividends down the road. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but interesting to think well, I, well one thing that uh someone i'm a mutual with on twitter said uh kirsten miller or omg floofy is that like apparently they were um the there was originally going to be a console version of e7 back in the day and one of the things that falcom was considering for that hypothetical version was co-op so i think it makes sense that Falcom would be, oh yeah, go for it, because they were already in the back of their minds were considering that in like the past. So if somebody came up to them and said, Hey, I got co-op working, do you are you fine with this? They'd be like, Right, sure. That's something they wanted to do, but just couldn't. Yeah. For whatever reason. Well, for because they release a new game every year. You know, they're yeah. always you know, <laughs> churning it out there. So uh but obviously it's gonna be interesting. Got... Go ahead. This is definitely a bit of a tangent, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see which comes first, whether it'll be a Cold Steel 4 or East 9, because I think it's obvious that one of those two games is going to be announced relatively soon and will probably be releasing this year, and it's going to be interesting. So in, in Japan, it went Cold Steel 3, Cold Steel 4, East 9, right? So it'll be interesting to see if it's the yeah. same cadence here. I hope we get East 9 this first. year. Uh, <laughs> Originally, I was expecting it to be East 9 first because the vibe that I was getting with the fact that they're porting Cold Steel 3 to both PC and Switch this year is that Cold Steel 4 is already going to be a tough enough sell. It's going to sell less than Cold Steel 3. And Nisa might just not want to have to have more than one marketing push for the game. For like each of the individual releases so porting the um, cold steel 3 now would mean that hypothetically like the vast majority of the work for porting cold steel 4 would already be done so that when that game comes out in the west it can be a day and date release between ps4 pc and switch which saves which basically gets them more bang for their buck when it comes to marketing it uh unless you're that, cynical and you think they're trying to court some percentage of double dipping but we never really know how much that really I, plays I don't factor, especially so. with the, especially with the struggles that nisa has shown porting to pc you know obviously they yeah, I, I don't do think so hot with nisa out of the gate right but some people always kind of yeah. simply you know point that out yeah my assumption was is that they'd have the ports for cold steel 3 this year and then east 9 and then they'd have cold steel 4 next year but now with the wording of that one like answer in Durante's AMA, it's like, is he trying to hint something here? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, considering that like people looked up the Steam stub for like the Cold Steel 3 port, and he's been working on it since November 2018, it Damn. would absolutely not shock me that he's already working. Well, actually, I'm going to say that I am 
pretty much certain that he's already working on the PC port for Cold Steel 4, even if it hasn't been announced for localization, because we know what's going to come. And considering how early he was working on the PC port for Cold Steel 3, it would just make sense that he would already be working on the port for the sequel. Yeah, but in my personal preference is that I, I've liked Yisei a lot more than Cold Steel 3, so I am really excited of Yisei 9, even though I hear it maybe not hit quite as high, but obviously everyone, it's hard to know until yeah. you play it yourself. But I would, I think, just my personal take is I would love Yisei 9 this year and Cold Steel 4 next year. Uh, just, But obviously yeah. everyone's going to be excited for different things. But it's cool It's cool that I think people were really hesitant and skeptical about Nisa originally, and I think some people are still that way. But with Durante on board, with the, with new ports coming to Switch uh, and PC with being supported, uh, like with Durante, it's. I think people are generally optimistic. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I actually put out a few tweet, uh, tweets yesterday basically saying that between the Cold Steel 3 translation being actually good like some technical problems aside like it's a huge game i'll say what i i've always said even if xseed with the same localization team had handled cold steel 3 there was going to be some issues because that game is a monster and i legitimately pity anyone that had to go through and translate and or edit that game uh but yeah so between the translation being i'd say good the uh, Switch ports that they've been putting out, the better marketing push that they've given the series, well, the series is, and uh, now the improved PC port for Ease 8, I think that a lot of people are, are at least willing to give them the benefit of the doubt now, where that might not have been the case before Cold Steel 3 released. All right, so that kind of hits the highlights about what happened over the last two weeks, uh, the start of 2020, a new year, a new decade. Obviously, there's some things that we didn't mention that are covered on our website, like uh, Kite has been covering Neo 2 and Yakuza Like a Dragon. Uh, we've got Adam who has covered some smaller games like Banner of the Maid, a Chinese strategy RPG, and some adventure RPGs like Black Book. Just kind of little smaller tidbits here and there. Uh, that are kind of outside the scope of the podcast before we start to wrap up is there anything else from early 2020 that anyone feels super strongly about that they want to voice while they have the chance uh not really from uh early 2020 but the i will say that the pc port for uh, dragon quest builders 2 is very good uh and if you haven't played it yet i would really recommend it it was one of our top five well yeah top five games of uh, 2019 and you really can't go wrong with the PC port. It's really well done. It's a great game. Yeah, you play it. I've, I've already seen sentiment in general places, social media, where, where it basically say, hey, Dragon Quest Builders is surprisingly good. Don't sleep on it. I, so, there, if there was a Kotaku article a couple of days ago, like, I made my top 10 and I played Dragon Mistake. Uh, you're cutting. You're cutting out a bit, but basically they, they wanted to revise a top 10 list to re-include Dragon Quest Builders. Yeah. yeah. I need to give that a go, really. It's really good. Uh, the Switch board's a little rough, like, as you go further on through the game. I'm not sure if they ever fixed that, but the game's amazing. Yep. All right, so to reflect on this a little bit, obviously, this is the Tetracast. We're, we're winding down here. This is something we're hoping to do every two weeks. We'll see how plans go. Uh, this is something that we're looking to make kind of one of our projects for the year. 
Obviously, you can always find us on our website at RPGSite.net. We're pretty active on Twitter at, at RPGSite. We're on Facebook as well, just simply under RPGSite.net. And then obviously, we're all also, we have a Discord, which the easiest way to get there would probably be to hit the Discord link from our homepage. And then we're also all on Twitter ourselves, all five of us, I believe. So you can find me if you want at Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T, Zeo Masicot. Uh, Cullen, where can they find you at? Uh, I'm not that active on Twitter right now because I'm kind of in a social media break, but um, uh, you can find me on Dr. Cullen PhD. All right. How about you, George? I'm not too active on Twitter either. I mostly just retweet stuff, but if you want to find me and follow me, it's uh, at G-E-P-U-G-G for G-Pug. Ah, give, you, give yourself some credit. I saw you share your setup for, for Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, and I thought it was Oh, yeah, cool I did. Looking. Okay. Yeah, ignore all me. Right, I so... am active all the time. <laughs> yes the only two <laughs> options how about you how about you adam uh i'm i i am very quiet i am k-i-n-g underscore s-e-d there seems to be a through line here what about you james you're you're loud on twitter please tell me uh <laughs> some might even say too loud uh you can find <laughs> me at t-h-e-s-w-w-e-e-t Obviously, you can follow any of the voices here if you like. Obviously, we'd love it the most if you followed us at RPG site. That's where we post our news. We'll retweet fan art. That's where that's kind of where we're most active and in, in, uh, where we engage with our anyone that follows us. And obviously, like our Discord I mentioned, we've got chats for games that are coming out, a general chat. You know, if you if you like this, please you know give it a listen, share it around, all sorts of that. And we're hoping that we'll see you again in a couple weeks. So thanks for listening, and we'll tune in next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.